0: Well, hello, Seattle. Hello,
1: Pete and Welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, event sommelier, your weekend wine guy, and the Commodore... Of kombucha, or comedon, I guess it would be, because it's all about the Ks here. And speaking of Ks, uh, how about those Mariners, right? Uh, Wow, what another season. It's September. Uh, The boys of of October are coming from the East Coast and, of course, from uh, Houston. And uh, baseball has been uh, uh, one of those long and crazy rides here. Um, And it's kind of an evolution, right? we got a bunch of young pups now on the team. And it kind of reminds me of the beverage industry, because there's a bunch of young pups out there in this beverage world, and they're making cider, they're making beer, they're making wine. And, of course, they're also making spirits and kombucha, hard kombucha. I've got a cool cat out in San Diego right now. He's he's the director of sustainability. And I guess, I don't know. Sustaining your own job, I think, is really what it's called. It's because he's always doing... (laughs) I haven't met the cat. His name's Adam Heiner. He's with Boochcraft, and uh, uh, it's a can of fizzy uh, lemon maple thyme um, kombucha, high alcohol. Uh, But let's get the story. Uh, Hey, Adam, welcome to Happy Hour. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Hey, all right. Um, I got this box in the mail, and it's, it's so pleasant to find a box. It's like Christmas almost every week here at uh, the place <laughs> Studios. Um, this one was a little wet. <laughs> so I always know there's something good in there. Let's talk about uh, Boochcraft. First of all, um, let's talk about you, Adam Heiner. How did you get into this beverage business?
2: Well, I started in the food and beverage business. I had a catering company and a restaurant. And I was making my own kombucha homebrew on top there. Just regular kombucha, not hard kombucha. And it was flying off the shelf. We couldn't keep it in. We were making, we were selling more kombucha than beer. And so, um, yeah, I just kind of saw the, thought thought it would be a good idea to to make more of it. And a couple (laughs) years down the road, sold the restaurant and um, met up with some friends and started this,
1: this brewery. Interesting. Is that is that a California thing? Because I know that there, there's a different uh, pressure to be thin and healthy, California versus up here <laughs> in Seattle. So was kombucha being something? I mean, when did kombucha hit California? Because I just saw kombucha like three years ago here in Seattle. Um, I mean, I,
2: I I first saw it out here back in like oh six oh seven when I was like shortly after I moved here. Um, it was definitely much more of a really obscure thing in the beginning, but now, I mean, it's
1: every, there's kombucha everywhere. There is. Yeah. That means a lot of mothers out there, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah, true. Um, let's talk about the health benefits of kombucha. First of all, I understand that it helps with, uh, Mm -hmm. digestion. Is that right? Or what is it? Yeah, it's got probiotics in it. So
2: you've got your living probiotics that are good for your gut health and digestion. Um, really just drinking a lot of probiotics. A lot of them don't take, take up residence in your gut, but they pass through and they kind of keep your the bugs in your gut on high alert and keep you healthy. Uh, then there's also a lot of beneficial
1: acids. There's acetic acids and lactic acids and all sorts of beneficial acids in kombucha as well. Sure the acetic acid thing was uh, kind of the apple cider uh wasn't that a craze or is that still a deal to take a yep. shot of apple cider a day yep. to help uh keep your system alkaline or something or I'm not sure. Yeah exactly
2: drinking apple cider vinegar is really good a lot of people can't handle it so they came out with drinking vinegars now they have you know more tolerable apple cider vinegar mixed with a little bit of sweetener and
1: sure. water. Well that's fun. So everyone's going to be super healthy, we'll live a long time and we'll uh drain the social security <laughs> count. <laughs> we got to worry about. Exactly. But we won't need it because we'll have all this healthy lifestyle. So um how many kombucha companies or kombucha companies are in California, you think?
2: Are we talking hard kombucha or regular kombucha because I couldn't count the regular ones. Hard as
1: kombucha. As Let's talk hard kombucha. As
2: far as hard kombucha, uh, you know, like the 3% and above, I'd say there's about um there's like five or six in California, and there's probably about 10 or so that we know of in the country.
1: Oh, wow. Okay, so you guys are really the epicenter, the, the San Andreas Fault of uh, hard kombucha, <laughs> Uh which is super yeah, fun. it all started here. We have, we have three of them down here in San Diego. We were the first. And, really? And, um, yeah. Tell me about the the name, Boochcraft. I mean, I get it, Hoochcraft, but Boochcraft. So, Booch Craft, I mean, Booch is the common name for kombucha.
2: People call it Booch a lot of the time. And then craft, as in craft beer, kind of. so. And also, you know, just making a craft beverage and making things from scratch and, you know, with high-quality ingredients.
1: I see you have cans here, which is really fun. And I also like the fact that it's 7%. Um, and, and what's the calories here? I'm trying to find the calorie count. I don't see a particular... On on this can here, but a, a can of the uh, grapefruit hibiscus uh, heather, a seven percent alcohol, twelve ounce can. How many calories in that? Um, that one ranges about a hundred and eighty calories. That includes the alcohol. Sure, welcome. So,
2: <laughs> so most of that is alcohol. You know, uh, there's a little bit of sugar in there from the cold pressed juice. We ferment away just about all of the cane sugar that we use for the fermentation of the primary and secondary, and then what remains, we we basically we end up with a very dry, high alcohol kombucha, and Then we flavor with cold pressed juices that we make in house. All
1: right, so I'm tasting it. This is really a delicious drink. I like that it's uh, grapefruit because you get a little tannin in there, and hibiscus gives you that kind of red floral note. Uh, I'm not trying to find the heather in this beverage. What? How many tries did it come? Uh, attempts at this recipe to figure out that heather was essential uh heather flour is it's very subtle it's a floral note in there um
2: it's actually kind of a throwback to an old uh kind of the medicinal beers they were called uh heather ale it was an old celtic recipe and they were making beer with all different types of herbs and you know as for a health elixir and um heather was one of the one of the ingredients that they used back then
1: and Heather what does heather do I mean I'm thinking heather locklear I know what she does for me but is there another uh, medicinal <laughs> purpose for what heather does is it relaxing is, is it invigorating uh, so it's good for allergy
2: allergy prevention
1: and subsiding allergies. Okay. All right. Well, um, yeah. I tend to be allergic to some of the gluten these days or whatever it is. I don't. is. They're trying to, to fool us all. But how many flavors does Boochcraft produce? I, I saw that I have three. I've got uh, the uh, grapefruit, hibiscus, and heather. There's lemon, maple, thyme, and then uh I saw another one. Ginger? Uh, ginger, on rose hips. Is that the three? Is that the family of uh, Boochcraft? Uh, no, we have more. So we have apple, lime, jasmine. We have
2: uh, grape, coriander, anise, which is kind of on hiatus right now. We have watermelon, mint, chili, which is our summer seasonal out right now. Uh, then you've got the lemon maple thyme there. And then we have an orange pomegranate beet, which is also available year-round.
1: Wow. Are there any purported benefits to each uh, version of recipe? Does the beet uh, help me with uh, passing some of the toxins, if you will? <laughs> I'm sorry, did you
2: say this? Does
1: the beets, you know, beets help you move toxins? Oh, beets. Yeah, of
2: course. I mean, (laughs) I think what you get is, you know, alcohol, as we know, if you drink too much of it, it's it's not not healthy for you. But if you combine your alcohol with, you know, nutritious cold-pressed juice, herbs, we use beet powder in this one, you're getting all the best things you could possibly mix with your alcohol. And no additives and no other, you know, no other weird flavor enhancers or anything like that. So you're just getting the cleanest public beverage you can possibly find.
1: I like it. So we, you're really replacing – Health benefits from the, from the you know, subsequent ingredients. It's exciting. I think you're replacing the Bloody Mary as the uh, America's most healthy uh, alcoholic <laughs> beverage. Although maybe a little too much yeah. sodium in those things. But uh, I always use V8, so I feel better about myself. Uh, I'm tasting this uh, grapefruit uh-huh. hibiscus, um, and Heather, it's, it's delicious. Uh, why 7% alcohol? Well, when we first started out, we were going to do a, kind of a 1% alcohol. And
2: we just saw that the market was saturated with regular kombucha. Um, we thought we could make something better than what was out there, but we had to get our alcohol license just to make the 1% alcohol. And then Uh, my (laughs) brother-in-law kind of got the spark. He was a beer brewer and, um, just said, Hey, let's kick up the alcohol. And then we really knew we, we kind of had like a wide open space there and we were going to be creating a a new market. So, and then 7%, we kind of wanted to be in line with IPAs and what people were accustomed to. We didn't want to be too strong. Where you can't drink too much, but we also didn't want to be, you know, too low, uh, where it's, you know, not really, not really worth it to drink one. Like.
1: <laughs> Wait, it's all about the health benefits, <laughs> and the, the the bonus is the alcohol, which can help uh, relieve stress, um, uh, dilate the uh, capillaries, and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, hey, it's it's a, it's all about balance for us. We're oriented for the the health benefits and the buzz. <laughs> the buzz, I like it. Uh, speaking with Adam Heider, who is the director of sustainability for Boochcraft, which is a hard kombucha company out of San Diego. Sounds like they got eight flavors or so and some seasonal stuff. Are they all 7% uh, alcohol by volume? Yeah. You know, they're all 7%. So we
2: occasionally do a special release in keg only that goes to a different alcohol level, but right now everything's
1: 7%. I love it. I'm tasting it now. I'm going to pour some of the uh, lemon-maple thyme. This is an interesting combination, lemon and maple. It doesn't sound like that's one of the – I mean, I get it as a, as a small yay. Yeah, I get you're adding acid to something that's sweet, um, but what's, the, uh, what's the, the background of this uh, particular recipe?
2: I mean, we just wanted to make something that was lemon-forward and more sour than our other flavors, and then thought of, you know, kind of like a lemonade, but then bring in a little bit of maple. Um, One, we get to get some of the highest-quality maple syrup from a farm around the East Coast uh, directly from the farm, and it just adds a nice complexity um, rather than just using a standard sweetener. And uh, then the time adds just... A hint of kind of savory, so you get your sour, your sweet, and your savory all in one drink. But it's really lemon
1: forward. So it is very lemon forward. It's very refreshing. I, I like the acidity because the acidity lingers. Um, I'm curious: is it the same mother base for all of these uh, different expressions, or do you craft or you brew or uh, ferment uh, a different particular yeast strain or um, acetic strain?
2: No, right now we're using all the same. Mother, culture, primary fermentation, as well as the same secondary and same yeast and secondary. And um, so we have basically the same high alcohol kind of base kombucha that we flavor with. Then we use fresh juices and herbs to flavor everything.
1: I love it. I'm glad it's 7% because these days on the media I hear that everyone hates the 1%. So it's best that you... uh you went big on that. Let's get a website that people can find information because I know actually you just launched in Seattle last month. Uh, what are the stores that people can find information and in? perhaps a website in case they can't remember? Um,
2: so on our website, com, there's a where to buy. Okay. And that's com slash where dash two dash buy but you can just go to our website and find a way to buy page
1: boochcraft b-o-o-c-h craft c-r-a-f-t com. you've got eight flavors was that right is that what I, th- I read or counted in my mind that i didn't really count yeah overall
2: but you know we won't have all of them up there and some of them are seasonal so you'll see um a handful of those probably five flavors up in seattle um as you go out to the stores and look on our where to buy page,
1: is that whole foods or p c c or metro or all of all of them uh you know we're launching uh we just launched in Seattle
2: check the website um, so we're slowly getting into more into more stores, so yeah, just check the where to buy Whole Foods is very uh likely you'd find it there and um just search you know search online and you can always shoot us a message um through our website if you can't find anything.
1: Well, congratulations! Tasty stuff. Uh, I'm digging this hard kombucha. It's a nice uh, diversion from the ciders and the beers, and it still works uh, in the ways you want it to. Plus, you get that healthy benefit. Uh, Adam Heiner with Boochcraft, Thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thank you. All right, folks, stick around. I've got. Uh, we're going to go from uh, kombucha to cider. Stick around. Be right back on Happy Hour Radio.
0: America first and holding the powerful accountable Sean Hannity weekdays 6 to 9 p.m. talk radio 570 KVI you're in the know with KVI One to know weekends here's more happy hour radio with Christopher Chan all right, Seattle, hey, welcome back to round two. Uh, I'm super excited,
1: as always. Uh, we talked about bootcraft, and now we're going to talk about Breedkloof. <laughs> From Boochcraft to Breedkloof, I've got uh, uh, one of the very most famous uh, winemakers in South Africa, and he works for Simon Sig, which uh, was the first winery in South Africa to establish the Method Cap Classique, which is basically Brut traditional or Method traditional uh, sparkling wine. And it's absolutely delicious, um, you know. I wrote a little letter to uh, the Wine Spectator uh, a couple of weeks ago regarding their uh, their issue about uh, New World sparkling wine, and they they uh, excluded uh, South Africa, which I was just appalled and aghast and horrified, and I so I had to write a letter and say. How can you not recognize this fantastic uh, new world style of bubbles method cap classique? And I got a response. They printed the they printed the letter, and then I got a phone call from South Africa. And uh, to my delight, I have a co-owner and chief winemaker for Simon Sig Estate, Johan Milan, on the line. Uh, Johan, welcome to Happy Hour.
3: Yeah, very nice to talk to you, Christopher, and thank you very much for the invitation.
1: My, my my pleasure. Uh, I was, again, quite surprised and, and quite pleased to actually have my letter uh, reverberate or get some attention on the uh, national and international level, I guess, as it were. And I had a wonderful time in uh, um, South Africa. So let's talk about you. Are you South African born, I take it?
3: That's right. I was born there and uh, grew up in the town of Stellenbosch. So my whole life I've lived on the estate. Uh, so I'm very privileged in that respect.
1: Fantastic. Let's talk about uh, how you got into wine. Like in France, they or in Europe, we drink wine or they drink wine at a very young age. Was this the same case in South Africa?
3: Yeah, I must say I was fortunate because uh, while growing up, you know, during school holidays, it was our summer holidays was always sort of during the the harvest when we were still growing fruit. So we never really went away. And from an early age, I started working on the farm. And I think that's how you develop an interest uh, because you are really part of the whole uh, growing process. And then, um, you know, harvest is normally in uh, January, February, March. And uh, that's when the new school year starts in in South Africa after the Christmas holidays. So uh, middle of summer, really hot. It would, uh, we would go to school by bus. And then when you get back in the afternoon at about 3 o'clock, it's, you've had a long day at school, and on the way home, I would walk through the cellar. And um, while the young juice, uh, the young wines are busy with fermentation, you know, it's it's quite sweet. It contains a lot of sugar, very little alcohol, and I have a glass or two of uh, fermenting grape must, which I think is, is uh, the closest thing we had to Coca-Cola in the 60s. <laughs> so um, it had gas, it had sugar, and it was actually absolutely delicious. So uh, it was something that uh, I say where you get the smell of wine, and I think then it became a real interest for me.
1: That's pretty cool. I know that when we visit Napa Valley on some occasions during harvest, the, the whole region is just wafting with beautiful smells of fermentation, yeast, and of course grapes, and perhaps some bees. Do you have you have some South African bees down there? Do they are the bees attracted to the grapes as well?
3: Oh yes, absolutely. When when um, uh, especially when we try to make something with of a late harvest style and. Uh, uh, the berries would uh, start to shrivel up and turn into raisins. That's when you see that the bees um, really come for that sugar because uh, other flowers at that time of the year is a little bit scarce. So they're looking for the sugar to make honey.
1: Oh. Oh, interesting. So uh, I wonder if there is some wine, if wine. Was it wine pollinated honey or something like that? That could be quite interesting. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, how you got into winemaking. What was your uh, was this a passion in college or university?
3: Uh, you know, after school in the afternoons, I used to uh, walk into the cellar, and what what uh, interested me that it was always something different happening there. So it was never sort of routine and something that happened month in month. Uh, out. It was always uh, uh, stimulating to go there and I would uh, get involved and help them, um, whether they were labeling or, or racking barrels and tanks. And I think that's the the part of the winemaking that, uh, that caught me and made me really interested to study it. Although before I went to study uh, winemaking, I did consider other options as well, like uh, commerce, because, you know, wine is not only about the growing of the grapes, making of the wine. There's also the business part of it, which uh, Mm -hmm. is how to sell it, which sometimes I think is the most difficult part. And uh, (laughs) so I did consider that. And eventually, I think I was never um, regretted the fact that I – decided to become a winemaker and study winemaking.
1: Well, fantastic. And I know I was speaking with John Milan, who is the co-owner and chief winemaker for Simon Sig Estate in Stellenbosch, South Africa. And I guess our listeners should know that you're part of a family. You have a family legacy with Simon Sig Estate. Let's talk about that.
3: Yeah, the... uh the estate goes back to the early 1940s when my grandfather on my mother's side, he bought the the farm and uh, started farming. And uh, the, the, although he made wine, he never really had his own label and never bottled it. But when my parents got married after they uh, met at uh, Salamage University, my father was uh, uh, also studied winemaking. And uh, he came from his own father's wine farm. But uh, when they married, he took over the property and uh, started to modernize the cellars and uh, expanded the vineyards. And then in 1968, he realized that uh, he would uh, battle to make ends meet with all the expansions that he did, and he decided that the only way was to uh, to add value, and that's where the name of Simon Sik was born, which, incidentally, it, uh, it's named after the beautiful mountain Simon's Berg, or Simon's Mountain, and we have... Uh, the, uh, Named it Simon Sick because it means the the view of Simon or Simon's view. Ah. And uh, so uh, he was the second generation. And then me and my brothers got involved in the, in the early 80s. Um, and we uh, were there uh, until the next generation are now starting to join. So I've got a son and uh, a nephew and a niece from my brother's side who are also uh, uh, Involved, and they're going to carry the the business into the next uh, generation, which is very uh, uh, promising and very uh, good feeling to have that it's in safe hands.
1: That's great. I know that here in Washington State we have a uh, um, a well, a really relatively new wine industry, but we have about almost a thousand wineries now, and I know that uh, the succession plan is something that people don't necessarily talk about in the first 10 years because 10 years goes by so quickly, and then it's 20 years, and you go, what are we going to do with this winery? And yet you have family and a great tradition and legacy. How many wineries are in Stellenbosch there? Um, There are probably
3: around about 200. Um, And uh, in the whole country, I think the number of growers and and producers would be about 3,500. But many of them are growers of grapes, and then that is delivered to... Uh, bigger merchants or cooperative wineries. So having your own winery and your own estate is, is uh, relatively new. If, it, if you think back, that Simon Sig started uh, in 1968, and at that point in time, we were only number five in the Stellenbosch region. So it's something that has picked up speed and momentum uh, a lot in the in the past 20 or 30 years.
1: Right, and the, the history of wine, the in, wine industry history in South Africa is quite interesting. Of course, we had the uh, the state come in and the government come in and control production and everything was cooperative. And, it, it, of course, that was the lowest common denominator. It kind of hurt the sales of, of the wine and kept uh, uh, South Africa in a mediocre area because there was no money and no, no uh, uh, inspiration to improve quality, etc., until that ended. And, of course, that's when Simon Sig started, correct?
3: Yeah, I think that was around about the time when the the modern wine industry uh, started and uh, from that point uh, definitely expanded uh, hugely. The other major turning point was obviously when uh, uh, South Africa became a, a democracy in 1994 and all of a sudden we had the world market that we could export to and that wasn't really feasible in the past. So that that also exposed us to international markets, international trends and and, uh, preferences. So we had to go through quite uh, serious changes and had to adapt very quickly uh, from a very insular domestic market to something that we had to uh, provide and sell wines uh, to consumers all over the world.
1: Of course, the ending of the apartheid was a celebration of the world, and of course democracy and um, it did open up the the world to the uh, the little uh, state of south Africa and of course, you now have um, exports and recognition for a variety of different grapes and different wineries, and of course, uh, my favorite method cap classique um, quickly, we're going to take a little break here in a moment, but uh, let everyone know that um, how the how wines got to South Africa, how did grapes and vin- vines get to South Africa?
3: Yep, okay, sure.
1: That was uh, from the French, right? That's the, the town of the French Quarter, the the shook is when the French were were uh, le- leaving persecution from France, the Calvinists, and so they came to South Africa to practice their religion. They also brought vines and started growing grapes, and that became um, a big industry because of all the, the Dutch ships and things that were heading down there to, to uh, refill, and wine is a very important uh, part of a sailor's life, where it could be rum and alcohol and beer. So it's... Uh, quite a, quite a great um a twist of fate there how someone someone flees persecution and then becomes a, a great asset for a new country. Um speaking with Johan Milan who's the co owner and chief winemaker for Simon Sieg Estate. Johan, I've got the uh, 2018 Chenin Blanc, the 2014 Pinotage and of course a 2017 vintage method cap classique the Simon Sieg uh Cups Vonkel, right?
3: Yes, yes. Excellent. Just to explain to your listeners that um, Kapsapunkel uh, was the first name my father uh, gave to the bottle-fermented sparkling wine because South Africa could not use champagne on the labels or a metal champenoise. and That's it. Uh, So he gave it the Afrikaans' name of Kapsapunkel, which means if you directly translate it, the sparkle of the cape or uh, cape sparkle.
1: Fantastic. Hey, hold that thought. We'll be right back. We're going to taste some wine on Happy Hour Radio.
0: Start your day the right way. The Commute with Carlson, live and local. Weekdays, 6 to 9 a.m. Talk Radio 570 KVI. Now more KVI Want to Know Weekends. Back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan.
1: All right, Seattle. Hey, Peter Sound. Welcome back. Time for round three. I have three bottles of wine, lucky me, uh, from my my new friend, uh, Johan Milan, who's the co-owner and chief winemaker for Simon Sig Estate, located in Stellenbosch, South Africa. And I've got three bottles of wine, the Chenin Blanc, the 2018 Chenin Blanc, the 2014 Pinotage. And Johan was just telling us about the Simon Sieg Kaps Vonkel 2017. You said, uh, um, Johan, that this was the first sparkling wine ever made, right, in South Africa?
3: Yeah, this was the first sparkling wine ever made with the champagne method, where the wine undergoes a second fermentation in the bottle. Uh, up to that time, uh, all the sparkling wines in, in our country was made with uh, carbonation. So my father went to uh, to France and he visited Champagne, came back with the idea to make something similar uh, in uh, South Africa. So because we uh, were growing a lot of Chenin Blanc in those days and Chardonnay and Pinot Noir were not available. So you use Chenin Blanc almost like the, the sparkling wines along the Loire Valley and uh, called it of uncle which means uh, sparkle of the cape, as I, as I said. And, um, yeah, now we are almost 50 years later um, in that time. Uh, during my time as, as winemaker, I realized that in order to make uh, the wine even better was to start using the classic grapes from Champagne. So from 1987, it was uh, Chardonnay Pinot Noir, and also uh, introduced uh, a bit of Pinot Minier in 1997. So now we use the the classic uh, champagne grape varieties, the, the process of uh, pressing the whole bunches and separating the juice uh, into the cuve and the thai. Everything is done very much according to the uh, the book of rules from champagne, but I think the, the main difference is that climatically and our soils are very different to champagne in France. Uh, they are very... Far north, so they've got a very cold and marginal climate, and to me, that is the main difference is that we are uh, in a southern hemisphere with a Mediterranean climate. But obviously, we all know South Africa is also known as sunny South Africa, and that's one thing I want to the wine must show that it has a lot of sunshine. So, the Carps of Uncle is, is a wine that does uh, show a lot of that. Uh, Beautiful f- uh, fruitiness coming from the uh, the Pinot Noir Chardonnay and, and Pinot Minier.
1: Well, I've always, I've been a big fan ever since I've I've tasted um, uh, Method Cap Classique, and it says here that uh, since 1971, so 71 was the first uh, ex- release of the uh, Caps Vonkel.
3: That's right. Yeah, um, and for ten years it was the only uh, bottle fermented uh, sparkling wine uh, in South Africa. And the other thing that that Uh, You mentioned uh, we call it Cap Classique in South Africa. It was quite a a problem initially that uh, why would people pay so much more for a sparkling wine when most of it um, were made by the carbonation method. So in the late 80s, uh, I phoned up some of my winemaker friends who were making um, the same style of wine, and we came together and uh, came up with a name that uh, this is méthode classique or méthode traditionnel, so the classical method, and uh, came up with the name that is the classical method from the Cape or the Cape province, and that's where uh, uh, méthode cap classique or cap classique was uh, invented or just MCC for short. And in a relatively short space of time, uh, this category has really uh, uh, grown tremendously from about 14 producers in 1992 to well over 120 nowadays. So they all still uh, belong to our association. And um, we try to control and have an uh, influence on the general quality of uh, Cup Classics in South Africa by still doing an, an annual base wine tasting where I think newer producer, younger winemakers can actually get a professional gu- uh, winemakers, give them some feedback and uh, a report on on uh, the quality of their base wines.
1: Well, that sounds super exciting. I would love to visit when that takes place. To, uh, of course, that's a lot of uh, bright acidity <laughs> with so yeah, many yeah, wines.
3: Yeah. But you, but you must bring some anti-acids because it's, <laughs> that's a real tough tasting. It's definitely... Uh, and uh, not for the faint heart.
1: That's right. I'm sure I am. I've gone through that. And, you know, I'm even a little more disappointed in the wine spectator knowing today that there are 120 different producers of uh, Method Cap Classique in the New World, South Africa. So shame on them for missing you. But I'm glad my letter got some attention. I'm tasting this beautiful wine. It's 2017 vintage. Now, how, how varied are vintages in sunny South Africa?
3: Um, obviously not nearly as varied as you would find in uh, in the a- Cool climate of uh, Champagne, where they have to rely on using reserve wines from older vintages to 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 use in the blend. Uh, in South Africa, the the variation in the blend in the vintages are just enough to keep it interesting, and there are definitely vintages that are over time. You realise that was a standout vintage, and it does uh, mean that uh, there are uh, variations, but. Uh, in the early years, I tried to, to make use of reserve wines and soon realized that we can maintain a house style, we can maintain consistency of it, uh, a quality without the use of back-blending older wines that is kept back in the cellar. Um, but the cooler vintages, obviously, are the ones that we uh, always recognize as the, the better ones uh, for uh, white wines in general and Cup Tresique as well.
1: Sure, but we'd like... Ad- I'll continue, please. Uh,
3: yeah the, the other advantage is that at the time when we pick the grapes for uh, captra seek it 's really early in the season it 's just after new year, so it 's before um, it 's almost late spring, early summer, and before the the uh, the real heat of summer uh, arrives in in uh, February and the early part of March, so that gives us uh, conditions that's very conducive to a very fine uh, cuvées with very good acidity and low pH. Ideal conditions and, and poor quality. Well,
1: it certainly is showing in this glass of 2017, Cops Vonkel. Um, uh, this is a delicious wine. How many months on the leaves? And is that a minimum? Is, there a, like, uh, is it nine months or 15 months?
3: Um, yeah, there is a minimum. Uh, by law, uh, always used to be nine months. Uh, but at the moment, uh, we are busy looking at the, changing the regulations because the uh, Coupler Seek Association funded uh, research that lasted about four years. And uh, the end result was that we're going to push up the minimum requirement to 12. And I think even uh, the, the aim is to end up maybe at 15 months in a few years to come. So to give everybody uh, enough time to get ready for that. So uh, <laughs> we, we are, we're already at, at 15 months, which uh, is, is um, quite a bit longer than the minimum requirement. And then, of course, once the, this gorgement takes place, uh, it goes on the cork, and uh, we try to keep it on the cork for about three months before it, uh, it ships.
1: Uh, very lovely. It's got a great palate, great creaminess, roundness. I'm actually tasting it room temperature because I got it from the mailroom <laughs> just this evening. Um, and it's it's great because there's you can't hide anything. There's uh, the residual sugar and the... Uh, uh, Acidity are perfectly balanced. It's a delicious wine. Congratulations. we got about two minutes before we, we can talk about the Chenin Blanc. Um, what do they call Chenin Blanc in South Africa?
3: Traditionally, the name was Steen, S-T-E-E-N, and I think that's a name that sort of arrived there with the Dutch who, who arrived uh, in South Africa in 1652. They were not really wine growers, but I think they were very good horticulturists, so they planted the grapes, and I think when the French Huguenots arrived there About uh, 36 years later, in 1688, they brought a lot of uh, know-how and expertise about not only growing grapes, but about winemaking to South Africa.
1: Wonderful! I see this lovely bottle, and you've commemorated uh, that uh, visit or the permanent stay by the uh, uh, French or the French Huguenots. It says 1688 on the label, or excuse me, on the bottle. It looks very much like the uh, coat of arms or the, uh, the the Pope's keys there from the Chateauneuf de Pop.
3: Yeah, that that uh, is part of the Milan family crest. Uh, that uh, Milan. Family originated in the south of France, and you know in those days it could have been south of France and part of Italy, but in a little village called uh, Merendol, which is uh, in Provence uh, in the, the the region of luberon so the the crest on the bottle is uh, dates back to about twelve hundred and fifty. but when the first uh, Milan arrived in South Africa, Jacques Milan he uh, got there in in 1688, and as part of the deal they had with the Dutch, they were all given land uh, to farm, and that was in a part of the country that uh, is known today as French Hook or the French Corner.
1: It's it's amazing. I'm drinking this beautiful Chenin Blanc. It's very reminiscent of the fabulous wines from Vouvray or Sauvignon. Uh of course, um other areas of, the, of Loire Valley. This says bright acidity. Uh it's also very appley and lemony. It's um it's quite delicious and it's screw top, which I know it helps maintain its freshness. Um we're going to take a little break right quick and we're going to come back and taste the 2014 Pinotage with co-owner and chief winemaker Johan Malan of Simonsig Estate from South Africa. Hey, folks, stick around. We've got lots more coming up on Happy Hour Radio.
0: Cruise home with Kirby. The Kirby Wilbur Show, live and local. Weekdays, 3 to 6 p.m. KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. And you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle, Somalia. Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back to our fourth and final
1: segment. I have Johan Milan, who is the co-owner and chief winemaker for uh, Simon Sigg Estate. And it's been founded in, uh, I think it was 1940-something. And uh, they've got a fantastic uh, sparkling wine. In fact, the first uh, ever Matodo Classico or Method Champenoise or Classique Method, the Kep. Classique uh from uh, Simon Sig is called Caps Vonkel. and of course I'm tasting the Chenin Blanc which is called Steen and uh Johan you said that you're you're actually to trace your roots back to uh France right with the name
3: yeah they are uh, my my ancestors came from uh, from the south of France they fled France uh as uh, Protestants ended up in, uh, in the Netherlands and they were sent down to, to the Cape Colony or the Cape of Good Hope uh, and they uh, landed there in 1688. So uh, they've been there for uh, more than 300 years. Uh, and uh, I think uh, my ancestors were wine growers and uh, we are still... Uh, in the wine business, so we've got a, a quite a few generations behind us.
1: Wow, that's amazing. We celebrate that here in the United States, of course, with our uh, Daughters of the Revolution and things like that. Um, I'm always curious. I wonder how many names of the ships are they, they celebrated like ours, like the Mayflower and the Santa Maria. But we only have a little bit of time left. We'll talk about that again. Um, so, Johan Milan, I've got the 2014 Pinotage. Quickly, tell us what, what Pinotage is.
3: Yeah, Pinotage is very much like the calling card for red wines from South Africa. You know, it's a great variety that was developed in Stellenbosch uh, at the University of Stellenbosch by a professor um, in 1924 when he made a crossing uh, of two different uh, French varieties, uh, namely Pinot Noir, the classic noble variety from Burgundy. And uh, Hermitage, or uh, as it was known in South Africa, but uh, known nowadays as sunzo from the from the shadow of the pop area, so he made a crossing, and out of that uh, he uh, had four seeds which he planted in his garden, and out of that uh, a totally unique variety developed uh, called pinotage and uh, the wonderful thing is that uh, he uh, may have been really lucky with the fact that uh, the offspring inherited uh, a lot of the good and characteristics from both parents. So Pinot Noir is a <laughs> variety that has fantastic uh, in it fruit intensity and uh, it's a real noble variety uh, but it's also uh, not that dark in color. But on the other side, the uh, Simzo is a bigger berry, slightly higher yield, uh, but the, the skin is nice and thick so it has uh, an abundance of color and, uh, and tannin. So all of those traits ended up in In Pinotage, I say the the only thing that we uh, firmly believe is that if you're not careful and if you don't handle the vineyard properly is that uh, it will bear a bit too much. But that is something that can be uh, corrected and managed in the vineyard. So uh, I think the the beautiful fruit that you find in Pinotage is uh, what it is best known for.
1: I love that <laughs> that they, the offspring gets the best of both parents, huh? <laughs> if only that were the case well, all the time.
3: We, we we know we think the same happens when we have children, you know?
1: Of course we think that, yes, how lovely. Although I'm I'm lacking a little hair here, so I'm not sure how that <laughs> <laughs> happened. Um, this is a delicious wine. I know that Pinotage has gone through a little bit of uh, um, transition over the years from a little bit of botanomyces and the term band-aids and burnt tire and things like that, but this is very fresh. It's even having a 2014 vintage, um, it's still fresh. And, of course, for all the listeners down there, remember, if it's 2014 vintage, uh, they harvest that in January, not in October or September. So it's still a little younger than we think, or excuse me, a little older than we think. Um, uh, delicious. It's got beautiful red fruit. It's a moderate-weighted wine. It's uh, moderately ripe. And you've got some spice from that saint or, or the... Um, Sanso, and it's it's really a deliciously intriguing wine congratulations let's talk about a yes, website thank you. yes let's what's the website for simon sig uh
3: yes the website is dot
1: za right uh, i like that za thing it's pretty cool simon sig um the first producer of the uh, method traditional sparkling wine in uh, south africa Primarily Stellenbosch. Um, you were made actually made famous by a big competition. That's how you kind of like gained notoriety down there. Tell us about that uh, that the award you won in two thousand in two thousand whenever.
3: Um, well, the, I think the most recent one that we are very proud of uh, is that um, uh, our pinotage was named uh, last week as one of the the top ten. Uh, wines uh, are made from Pinotage in the country, and there were some like 165 entries. So that is always a big challenge because the competition is really tough. Um, the other th- one that I think you referred to is there's an an annual uh, competition called the Cap Classique Challenge. So uh, all the producers of uh, bottle fermented sparkling wine or Cap Classique uh, enter, and you and won over the. And the, over the years, we've won it four times. So uh, that, that is something that uh, we're extremely proud of because uh, if you look at the competition and my fellow producers out there, the, the, the quality standards are really high. So it's something that we are very really, uh, um, pleased to be uh, uh, that successful in this competition.
1: Congratulations. Uh, fantastic wine. Johan Milan, Co-Owner Chief Winemaker for Simon Sega Estate. Thank you much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio.